Well, to start out our talk today, I thought I would share a story that I had learned uh, by reading in one of the missiology journals uh, that has occupied a lot of my thinking. This was a bit of a fantastical story that I think uh, will perhaps surprise you. I read a story about a pastor of a Protestant church in West Africa who was caught and arrested for performing rituals on a monkey skull. On a monkey skull. I don't know if you heard me say that. That's pretty serious stuff. When he was confronted about the hypocrisy of preaching, on the one hand, as a Christian pastor, the merits of the sacrifice of Christ in his church, and then practicing witchcraft in his home, he was confused about what the problem was. Ah. After all, he claimed he worked his nine to five in the church building, but then he practiced witchcraft and voodoo after hours in his own home. So in his thinking, he could be both a Christian pastor by day and a witch doctor by night and in the arc of a day embody two entirely conflicting worldviews without conflict in his mind or in his soul. Well, that's a pretty dramatic example about how evil beliefs and practices, specifically in this case from a satanic, overtly satanic worldview, can meld with a seemingly Christian worldview or a Christian-oriented worldview, whatever it was that he espoused in his church. And that type of admixture of these two conflicting worldviews is absolutely confusing to us, and it's also horrifying. Uh, But true believers who operate from what we would consider to be the biblical worldview can also be inappropriately influenced in their ideas and their practices by the cultures that surround them too. One example is a little less dramatic, but it's shocking in its own way. And it was from when I was a missionary to Italy in Irma's home country, where we met and started our family in the work of church planting in Rome. Well, it didn't take long for me to live in Rome to see that the evangelical Christian churches that were there could function a lot like Roman Catholic churches. In evangelical churches, here's a few things that I noted over the years that I was there. Believers in the churches don't really expect to understand and apply the teaching of Scripture to their lives. They might assume that the pastor functions like the priest to bring spiritual blessing in the act of being at church, but they don't lean on the pastor for biblical clarity. And many Italian believers don't expect to learn the Bible at church at all. They just go for the fellowship. They go for the singing, and they go for the prayer. Another thing that I learned in the Italian evangelical church in Rome, particularly, which is, I realize this is a generalization of many churches, but these were the larger issues, is that church members don't support their pastor financially. They expect them to take an implied vow of poverty, because after all, that's what the Roman Catholic clergy does. Uh, And so, on the whole, we would say the Italian evangelical reality was marked by materialism, by stubbornness, by laziness, and that would characterize many different congregations throughout Italy, not just Rome. And also, it would leave their leaders scratching their heads, wondering why the church isn't growing to be more Christ-like, and what do we do about that? Well, 
The church is called to resolve the cultural problems that creep into the congregation, not just the monkey skulls at home. We understand that's very dramatic, but what about those other things, this admixture of a, uh, of a fleshly, carnal, or even a Roman Catholic worldview as that creeps into the evangelical Christian reality? That leads to syncretism, this evil admixture of terror, truth and error of God-glorifying belief and pagan forms of self-righteousness. Well, last week I was in Monterey, Mexico, and you were so diligent to pray for me and for Irma. We went with a clean bill of health. We were grateful to be there. Uh, The people seemed to receive the word of God. There were over 300 pastors uh, and just some wives that came from all over the region, including other parts of Central and South America. And so it was a real wonderful time to be able to address those pastors. And I did so on this topic of cultural engagement. Uh, Now, that's a hard word to translate. You have to take a whole phrase to do it, and it didn't hit me until uh, the translator was trying to bounce off other translators of a good way to say cultural engagement. And then it occurred to me that I wouldn't have been able to do that in Italian either. It would have taken me a whole long phrase. But what I was getting at was the biblical perspective of how we reach out to people in society at large, and also within the smaller circle of the family of God within the local churches. And so I asked the pastors to try and answer two questions in my session. How should a pastor stop unbiblical ideas and practices from creeping into his church if they aren't already there? And second, is there a way to be confident that what the people in the church believe and how they express what they believe actually fits within the bounds of what Scripture would call faithful belief and practice? Well, it's undeniable that cultural problems exist in society, exist in the local church. We uh, enjoyed Pastor John devoting his entire message to this very idea of the darkness outside that creeps inside because it is present within each individual sinner of whom we also were. And this effect of sin in society collectively affects uh, not just groupings of people, but their entire context, the way they exist in their world and in their societies, how they conduct every aspect of their lives is ultimately, at this stage of redemption history, tainted by sin. So what's also undeniable is that any strategy that tries to accommodate cultural beliefs, cultural customs, cultural traditions, and ultimately cultural worldviews that are pagan in origin are bound to fail. These are strategies that do not solve the kinds of problems that pastors, church leaders, and really any faithful member of a church has to deal with when they find it creeping into their church. So many well-intentioned pastors and missionaries look at their pagan surroundings and and think that cultural engagement actually involves trying to deliver biblical truths in a way that the sinner might figure overlaps in a positive way with their normal beliefs. And that's to say a little bit of Christ added to the mundane, relatively okay, or even positive spiritual elements of their paganism. That is... a kind of a description of cultural accommodation. So cultural engagement then is thought of this uh, as uh, this kind of 
cultural accommodation between terms and concepts of a theological nature between Christianity and paganism that perhaps melded together could facilitate belief in the true gospel. That's going to be very confusing. And in some cases, it's going to be very horrifying, like we saw earlier. Now, that goal is ultimately driven by those who want to see Scripture proclaimed and be relevant in every aspect of this fallen society. The trouble is they're seeking a spiritual relevance from the non-believer's perspective. Do you see how that would work? They're looking to see what about Scripture can be added to what is the normal belief in order for the natural man to then accept, adopt, and build into their paganism. It's not a very Christian approach at all, and that's what we would say is cultural accommodation. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was able to walk you through the dissertation, just in a big line, um, thinking, and we talked about um, even that example of pig theology, right? That in uh, certain Pacific islands, uh, there is this idea, and it's actually worked its way in in translation, to shift from the Lamb of God to, you remember what it was? The pig of God. Uh, to find some other understanding of God pouring out his wrath on, a, um, on an animal fit for a curse. And so missionaries have constructed a whole pig theology for those cultures. That's cultural accommodation of terms and concepts that really mix together in a syncretistic way with pagan ideas. And that's not God's way of engaging the culture. What we want to do today is talk about cultural engagement God's way. And so we'll set out to do so by looking at what the Word of God says about how to use the Word of God to reach people in their cultures for Christ. Now this morning, you'll see this outline. There are three points of study, and we'll spend most of our time on the first point, admittedly. So uh, I do want this to be a sermon, although it is lecture-oriented as well. It could feel much like that conference session did down in Mexico, uh, just without the entanglement of translation. Um, But there are three points of study that we want to take a look at, and the the first one is going to get the bulk of our time. And it's to describe a biblical example of cultural engagement, specifically from Acts 17, looking at cultural engagement uh, God's way by looking at Paul's way. Uh, Second point of our study is to provide biblical principles of cultural engagement, and we'll get as far as the Lord will allow us to get this morning with that. Uh, Thirdly, we want to answer some questions that you might be having at the end of the study about the believer's role in uh, his or her culture. All right, so that's our outline, and that moves us into uh, the first point, which is to look at biblical Example in Acts 17 of cultural engagement done God's way. Well, the New Testament offers so many different examples of how the risen Christ's disciples would apply the Great Commission of Matthew 28 uh, in obedience to Christ. And we want to look at specifically the pagan Gentiles that had no uh, pre-understanding of the Judeo-Christian God at all. And uh, there are other passages where we see that same level of Um, of ignorant paganism, to use a lack of a better term. 
uh, and you'll see that in Acts 14, 8 through 20, if you'd like to jot that down for your own reading. That's another example of a short evangelistic message by Paul in Lystra, Acts 14. And then also, you could take a look at 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. That's also a great passage to look at the description of uh, the converts among uh, the Thessalonians who heard the clear preaching of the gospel, and what we see in their conversion story and description gives us insights into what that message must have been. But for our time together, we're just going to look at Acts 17, and specifically look at some of Paul's strategies of cultural engagement as he traveled, uh, as we'll see in that passage, from Macedonia in the north all the way down into Athens and up the hill, uh, uh, which is called Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And the first strategy of biblical cultural engagement that Paul employed is this, that Paul observed the culture by looking around. Sounds like a pretty obvious way to start engaging a culture is to just look around and be observant. Well, Acts 17 describes Paul's mission through Macedonia in the first 14 verses. And then it goes on in verse 15 through the end to talk about his work in Athens to the south. I'm going to invite you to open up to Acts 17, and we'll have a chance to trace through these strategies and look at a few different verses. Uh, But we will do a bit of picking through here just to uh, set the, the scene for these strategies, specifically the ones about observing culture. Now, Paul is the preacher. He's called that in verse 18, and he is proclaiming the gospel everywhere that he could. Uh, Where there's Judaism, he is uh, preaching in the synagogues. Where there's this pagan unbelief that has not been informed by Christianity at all, he is in the marketplace and uh, anywhere along his itinerary that he can go grab a crowd and preach the gospel. In Athens which you see down in verse 21, the citizens held high regard for novel intellectual presentations, and that made it relatively easy for Paul to conduct open-air evangelism. Great strategy. Now, traveling from the north in Macedonia toward Athens in the south, that gave Paul countless opportunities to witness all of the false worship from non-believers of various ilks, various philosophies, various strains of these mystery cults, all different forms of syncretistic worship, all within paganism and with some Judaism thrown in as well. And when he got down to Athens, Athens being the cultural capital of the Greek world at that point, verse 16 says, if you look there, it says, Paul was overwhelmed by the proliferation of idolatrous imagery across uh, 17, verse 16. says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his ministry partners, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Well, what Paul observed elicited a visceral response within him at the gut level. This idolatry aroused in him a mix of anger and grief, desire, and also disgust. This is all wrapped up in the Greek term that's used to describe his spirit being provoked with what he sees when he looks around. Now, the reason that Paul had such a strong reaction to the Greek religious culture was because, quite simply, he had his eyes open. He had his eyes open, and he was gathering data on the world around him. 
And what we understand Paul doing here is what every pastor, every missionary, every evangelist, and every uh, faithful church member is doing when he goes out to minister to people in the culture here or the culture out there, wherever that might be, as foreign as it may be. And part of that preparation uh, for bringing the gospel message is this cultural observation. So we don't want to miss sight of that. Now, Paul's initial survey of the Athenian spiritual culture involved carefully looking at their forms and their elements of worship. We don't have any reason to think that Paul delayed preaching the gospel so that he could do some tourism and just uh, spend several days, months, uh, traveling around to understand more and more, which could just really turn into Christian tourism. And we don't have any reason to think that he decided to uh, wait to preach until he reached a certain kind of what we could call cultural intelligence. Instead of maybe an IQ, a CQ, a cultural quotient, where he could say, now I understand the Athenians and I can speak to them as an Athenian would speak to an Athenian. That is Not the idea. What we see here is Paul is using his time wisely, and he's observing in order to assert the gospel. He's observing in order to assert. Yes, he's regularly proclaiming the gospel all the way through Macedonia, but in going around, he is preparing to proclaim. By looking around and going around, he is preparing to proclaim. This is important. Now, we don't know how much time that he invested in gaining this cultural awareness, but the time that he did invest was used to lay the foundation for the communication of the gospel. Paul didn't have to look far to find what we might call here points of contact. That's a term that F.F. Bruce has used as he studied through Acts and presented his commentary. He talks about points of contact, and I think it's a great phrase for what we're talking about. Points of contact with the foreign culture when you look around. Now, this passage has four points of contact, and I just want to walk you through these. And these points of contact were preparatory to his communication of the gospel. Now, notice when we talked about cultural accommodation as a wrong-headed, non-biblical strategy for uh, reaching people in a way that it makes their words and their ideas palatable, that's not what Paul's doing. Points of contact are simply to prepare to assert, to prepare to assert that which is true in the face of that which is false. Very different type of strategy. And this is ultimately a bridge to communication of the gospel. And the goal, of course, is to get them to at least listen to what he's going to say, and then when he says what he says, it's going to be a a pure gospel, unadulterated, uh, no matter what the context is in front of him, all the way from Macedonia, all the way through Athens. Now, the first point of contact we've already seen in verse 16. It's that Paul was observing the city full of idols. That's the first point of contact in verse 16. His first point of contact, what does it do? It exposed their false beliefs most generally. The first point of contact in verse 16 exposed their false beliefs generally. But the second point of contact, you can see that in verse 23. Paul explains that as he was, quote, passing through and examining the objects of their worship, he providentially found an altar inscribed, quote, to an unknown God. Well, this altar epitomized the spiritual ignorance of the people, didn't it? Because it showed that even the most philosophically developed people of Greece had no idea if they were worshiping enough gods. 
Maybe an altar to a yet undiscovered one might help them cover their bases, just in case. So the second point of contact with the culture that he brings up to them because he's observed it, what does it do? It exposes the futility of their false beliefs. That second point of contact with the altar to an unknown God exposed the futility of their false beliefs. And so he tells them that. Now, a third point of contact is found in Athenian poetry, and you'll find that in verse 28. This third point of contact in verse 28 uh, is where Paul goes on to quote some of the Athenian poets uh, that would have been very well known in the cultural capital. And he said he quotes this line, which they would have meant to say about Zeus, which is, quote, for we also are his offspring, end quote. Now, Paul turns that poetic line on its head in the next verse, verse 29, and is unmistakable that this is not about Zeus if you want to use a phrase like that in an actually truthful way. Because he says that in verse 29, let's read that. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. He says that if the poets knew the true and living God, these authority figures of not just culture, but all religious belief, then they wouldn't urge the people to make empty and worthless images of him in gold and silver. Whatever image just comes to their mind or they think reflects their best attempts at philosophy and religion. So what we see in this third point, by using the poets uh, as a point of contact with the culture, it exposed the unworthiness of their false belief. That's what he does. He exposes the unworthiness of the false belief that's around him. It's expressed by their own artists and it comes up short. Now, there's a fourth point of contact with the Athenian culture that really becomes the first point of contact with the audience when he finally makes his way up to the Areopagus. And this fourth point of contact is found in verse 22. Look at that verse. It says that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Well, Paul, as a point of contact, he opens his address in a winsome way a winsome way, utilizing a formulaic opening expression that this cultured audience would have appreciated if followed Greek rhetorical forms. He spoke to them, quite frankly, just with respect. With respect. He states that he observes they are very religious in all respects. But what we should note here is that Paul is not validating. He is not legitimizing their false religion, but he does state that he recognizes that they're very fervent in it. They're attempting to be consistent. And yet, it's, super, it's useless superstition. And of course, he can acknowledge that this is false, and he will do that as he builds his message. But here, he can acknowledge that their practices at least attempt to match their beliefs. Well, Paul's starting with a winsomeness, and it's very much appreciated. Again, these points of contact aren't the message. And so a missionary needs to understand that, that this isn't giving the gospel, but it's hoping that they'll keep their focus on him so that he can deliver the word of God to them. All for what? For repentance. Now, nice speech only goes so far. 
Paul's just looking for the opportunity to actually preach the gospel. He saw and heard everything that he needed in order to move forward into evangelism. Didn't really take that long. And proclamation then becomes the subject of the next strategy that Paul used to engage the culture God's way. And so that's our second point, that Paul engaged the culture by proclaiming scripture. He didn't become an Athenian. He engaged the culture by proclaiming scripture. And Acts 17 gives us some idea of Paul's method of cultural engagement, what that looks like. So let's grow the list of ideas here of this, these strategies first geographically. Go back up to verse 2, and you'll find that he starts his travels through that region in Macedonia. Paul employed in Macedonia in verse 2 um, what is used as this term, dialegomai. Dialegomai sounds like dialogue. It's what we would consider dialogue or dialogue method. A dialogue method gets a lot of hits from missionaries today as a give-and-take push-me-pull-you type of interaction. But his dialogue method throughout the regions um, is not what uh, is often used today. He's using dialegomai, uh, that's how this is being represented here, to represent a range of communication techniques. That would be preaching. That's part of the dialogue method. Discussion, of course, that would be dialogue. Answering questions that are brought to him. Q&A is dialogue method. Delivering sermons in any form at any time is always part of dialogue method in the biblical terminology here. But when we hear of religious dialogue today, it seems to be very ecumenical. Um, It's where both sides uh, learn together and perhaps adopt new truths together. Right? You tell me your truth, I'll tell you my truth. Together we'll discover some new truths and we'll walk away better than when we came. Well, that's not Paul's dialogue method. His approach was not a give-and-take interreligious roundtable engagement. His gospel message drove toward the death and resurrection of Jesus. Pure and simple. And this message was delivered to an audience that had no cultural, religious, or historical framework for a message with this kind of content. No basis for legitimate dialogue. And so this is how we need to understand that Paul is asserting truth that does not exist in their context. What he's doing is bringing them true spiritual knowledge. And he has it, and they don't. Once he asserts his spiritual knowledge, though, that's really, at that point, they do have his knowledge. And now they are held to account for acting on that knowledge immediately. Now, geographically, we come through Macedonia in Acts 17. By the time you get to verse 18, uh, Paul's in the Athens uh, marketplace. He's in the Agora, the marketplace. Now, Paul's worldviews and presuppositions... And uh, everything that he's speaking as content of truth shares no basis of faith, no doctrinal affiliation whatsoever with those most cultured, intelligent people of Athens. He's seen as bringing strange things that don't make any sense to people. And you see that as their reaction in verse 20. It says in verse 20, that for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these strange things mean. 
Well, of course they do, because that's what the Athenians did. Verse 21 says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Right. So this is culture to them. Cultural engagement ought to be, again, interreligious roundtable dialogue. That's how they want to do it. You tell me your truth, I'll tell you our truth, and we'll see what we can add to our basis and body of truth. But he has uniquely Christian propositions. And because he brings them with that forceful assertion, the Athenians at this point are starting to eye him with extreme caution. They don't see him as the friendly guest. Not exactly. In verse 18, it indicates that he was considered no better than an idle babbler, some translations would say. The term can also be translated as a scavenger, like a crow, like a rat, that picks up the scraps from different philosophies, cobbles them together, and when he regurgitates, he does the idle babbling of things of which he knows nothing. It's, it's basically a new form of philosophy, and that's what they think that they're hearing. It's philosophical scraps being cobbled together into an oddly shaped new kind of worldview. That's all they can make out from him. But uh, to the Athenian ear then, what they hear him saying when he speaks about Jesus and the resurrection is not... Uh, it's, it's an incorrect understanding. The comprehension isn't there. What do they hear? Well, the term resurrection that he uses is anastasis. Anastasis. And as he uses that term, they hear something that sounds like what we might translate as Anastasia. Now they think that Jesus is a new God, and he's got a girlfriend named Anastasia. And together they make this new power couple within the panoply of the gods. So this becomes very interesting to them. But of course they eye it as something that they have never heard. Their poets have never proclaimed. This is not part of any philosophy or their worldview, but they can add it in. And so now Jesus and his girlfriend uh, seem to be what Paul is expressing. And so Paul, that we know as the great monotheist, now seems like a strange new kind of polytheist, and he's in a world of limitless polytheistic religions and worldviews. So you see that, uh, that to the Athenian ear, they just are interested, but with a certain level of caution. Now, geographically, we move from the marketplace up into verse 21, the Areopagus, atop the hill. And this serves as the cultural center of Athens. And the participants that you read about here in verse 21, uh, they valued this religious roundtable dialogue above all else. Now, once Paul was brought up to the Areopagus, he only had one moment, one and only one opportunity to proclaim the propositions of the gospel. And so what does he do with these Athenians, with these strangers that just want to know more about this Jesus and Anastasia and anything else and challenge him on things and enter into a dialogue method and and convert it to their idea of dialogue? Well, he gets more forceful. In verse 23, I'm going to stand here and you need to hear these things. Allow me that space to talk. He enters in with respect. They respect him. He holds the mic. And he doesn't just 
uh, have to entertain their own thoughts anymore. He gives them his thoughts, which are God's thoughts from God's word. Now, a third strategy that Paul uses to engage culture we have up here is that Paul engaged the people with a confrontational message. And that's exactly what he's going to do when he forcefully says, I proclaim or I declare. Now, this means that he's entering into confrontation, winsome, respectful confrontation. So we move into his third major strategy here, and it begins in verse 22, and it's the message itself. Now, Luke provides only an excerpt of Paul's proclamation. Clearly, it's a more than 90-second type of uh, engagement here in the Areopagus. If we're just to read through only this, we have to conclude that it's a snippet, and there would have been more that he said. But what we get is so pertinent to the gospel. It is the gospel. It's exactly showing us the direction that he's heading and pointing out the different points of confrontation. And so we want to look at his proclamation as this confrontational message, these biblical truths that were preached sufficiently to specifically confront the false worldviews and false beliefs of the Areopagite uh, audience in order to call them to repentance. And it's really important that as we look at this message, we see it as anything but a, hey, tell me what you believe. Let me tell you a little bit. Take it or leave it. Let's just see where this goes. This is not how he does things. It is not cultural accommodation the way people think of it today. It is not roundtable interreligious dialogue, the way people think of it today. Quite to the contrary, Paul uses biblical concepts that were specifically offensive to his pagan audience. Now, offensive is to say that he doesn't give them anything to smile about. He gives them solid truths that Uh, strike against core beliefs of any of their worldviews. Everything that he says is confrontational because it's designed to shake up the audience. Each point that we'll look at is designed to repudiate, absolutely demolish the audience's most cherished beliefs and customs. And that's because, quite simply, the truth of the gospel demolishes all other truths. The truth of the gospel demolishes all other supposed truths. So let's take a look at some of these main points. First, he says that there is only one God and he is the creator. We see that first in verse 24. Take a look with me at verse 24. Paul proclaims, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Well, first, he reveals the true God. He reveals that he's the creator, the one who created the world and all the things in it. And that very act of creation testifies that he is the Lord. He is the possessor. He is the master over all of heaven and all of earth. The true God isn't what these Areopagites think of God. This true God can't dwell in their temples. He's no little domesticated spirit. Do you see the confrontation happening just with his very choice words here? Really, what he's saying is, what could contain God if he's the creator and Lord over everything? Despite man's best efforts, no one can force this transcendent God to dwell in a man-made structure, no matter how ornate it is. 
In fact, later in verse 29, read with me there, it says, like we've read before, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. Man's attempts to worship the divine essence in images or to consider themselves in some way imbued with spiritual material from the gods is nonsensical and it is futile. It is empty, it is a wrong-headed idea. When we talk about idolatry of false gods, we're talking about this concept of a deity that can never rise above the corrupted, corrupted view of man. As man can think it, man can design it. Man can gild it. And man can worship it. But that is not the true God. That is not the creator and Lord overall. Now, a second point here in his message, we see in verses 25 and 26, that God created mankind according to the biblical narrative of creation. God created mankind according to the biblical narrative of creation. This would demolish evolution for anybody today. Paul declares in verses 25 and 26, He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth. Now, because God made and owns everything, he's responsible for having made mankind and for sustaining mankind. He goes on in verses 26 and 28 uh, that simply looking at human history defies any Greco-Roman historical legend or creation myth itself. In verse 26, he states that all people of every nation come from one man. Who is that man? It is Adam. And all people are providentially guided to the lands that they occupy in their generation. And in verse 28, as we saw, uh, asserted by the poets with wrongful thinking, Paul asserts rightly, Quote, in him we live and move and exist. Now, this is to say that because the God that he preaches as creator and Lord of everything is the one who controls us. We live in his world. He does not live in our temples. You see, we live in his world. We are part of his worldview, whether or not it's what we've adopted or not. You don't have to believe it, but you live in God's world and he commands over you. No one has made up the idea of God, not the true God, because he's not a myth. The only thing that people make up are false gods, divine natures that are only earthly materials. And they also make up a lot of excuses why they will not believe in the God who owns them. The world in which they live is the world of the sovereign God who has designed and provides for all things. Now, there's a a third uh, component to this sermon that really helps us understand that cultural engagement as confrontation, and it's in verse 25. It's that human deeds do not bring a person into divine favor. Human deeds do not bring a person into divine favor. This is a big deal in Athens, It's a big deal anywhere. And why is that? Because the the punchline to this is that the true God of life need from us mere, mere humans anything in order to be satisfied or to function as God. You see how this is a confrontation. He's really saying that the very thought of paganism as they have designed it and perpetuated it is absolutely ludicrous. 
It's God that gives us so that we can exist. He's the independent one. Now, there's a fourth point here in his gospel presentation that no matter how much the most religious person might search for God, verse 27 teaches that man cannot find God or know the truth unless God reveals himself. Let me say that again. From verse 27, man cannot find God or know the truth unless God reveals himself. In verse 27, Paul lays out the irony that God is not far from each one of them. That's the phrase that he uses. Take a look at verse 27. He talks about within his sovereign control and his providence in this world. The goal is that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Well, they do grope in the dark, but they never find him. You see, it's kind of like a child's game, like Marco Polo in the pool. Or like putting a blindfold on and somebody just standing in one spot holding their breath. The person in the blindfold might actually just keep circling around, circling around, and never actually find them. And that's what the height of Greco-Roman religiosity and philosophy and art and culture reduces to. A child's game run by children who will never reach God. It's a game that religious people of all places play with God every moment of their lives. But God hasn't moved. He is findable. He is searchable. But not to those who will not uh, follow his way. And now Paul has come to say, even if you try, you can't find him but he can reveal himself. And when he does, which is what Paul is doing, his cultural engagement, his confrontational message, is that God is knowable. The one true God may now be found. The blindfold can come off. The response can come in. The sound is there. The word of God draws them now to find the one true God, if they will listen. And really what this points out as this confrontation is that every false belief system is spiritually bankrupt. Non-believers live in God's world just like believers do. They're under his sovereign rule just like we believers are. And yet they have no idea that they are. Why? Because of what he says elsewhere in Romans 1.18, that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth by their very lives, by their very nature, by their deeds in unrighteousness. And so in their unrighteousness, God is always just out of reach no matter how much they grope for him. It's fascinating. Now, a fifth point, and there's six here, is in verse 30. It's that God counts everything as sin that is not true faith. Talk about confrontation. God counts everything as sin that is not true faith. Take a look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Idolatry, pagan philosophies, every religious system results from one worldview. No matter how many we might cite, no matter how many nuances, it's the non-biblical worldview. You understand this? It's where God can be created in the image that I've constructed in my mind. 
rather than the true way. That we know God through the words that he has revealed, the concepts that he has revealed in Scripture. So every belief that doesn't come from the true faith in the God of the Bible as revealed in Scripture is sin in the eyes of God. In verse 30, Paul uses this term that he used at the beginning in verse 23. It's ignorance. We saw it in verse 23. Here it is again in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. Now, Paul's listeners may have attempted to worship an unknown God out of ignorance to the truth uh, about the biblical God, but now the preacher has revealed the biblical God, and now the question is, what will they do about it? Now, how will they respond to the truth? Because that unknown God is known. Now, will they stay in their ignorance? Because, verse 30 says, the times of ignorance are over. What awaits them? No more patience. That's what. God's patience has run out on everyone listening to Paul in that moment. You didn't think that was cultural engagement, did you? That's exactly what it is. God has sent Paul to preach to those people that they must turn from their sinful cultures, from their unbiblical worldview, from their ungodly practices, and they can then find God and be saved according to his word. Paul's just preached the way, the truth, and the life, and now the listeners need to enter into the way, the truth, and the life, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's as forceful as he can be, because you saw that this phrase also in verse 30. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Who's declaring to men? God. God is now declaring, or God is now commanding men. Now, this has a double force. First, God is the one doing the commanding, not Paul. You see that? You see, the force of his authority is God himself. Paul is doing the preaching as a herald of the truth. But the message is entirely God's. Now, God is the one who is speaking with all the authority of heaven through Paul. And the double force is that the message is being commanded by God. It's not just coming from God. It's not a take it or leave it. I just really just want you in my lap. There's something stronger than that. It's that they are being commanded to listen and respond to the God of heaven. That's the double force. It's no suggestion, no simple offering, no take it or leave it. It's take it and live. God is commanding your repentance and your belief. That's a strong and very confrontational message. Nothing that Paul says is itself palatable. None of it is up for grabs. None of it is flexible. But he is trying to make sure that he's using language that they can understand so that what's delivered is God's command to them. And then they can respond to that. You don't add this God to your panoply of gods. The belief that honors God the belief that isn't in and of itself sinful belief is a radical belief. It is a full departure from what they formerly called truth. There are no man-made beliefs in this. You can't have man-made beliefs plus biblical doctrine. Now, this is where we need to be careful too because there's no faith that honors God 
if somebody believes biblical doctrine, but then on top of that adds worldly thinking. That's not a pure faith. This doesn't please the Lord. That you, you agree with the Bible in every sense of what it says, but you add in your old ways to that. You add in old beliefs on top of that. Now you've just made a panoply of gods. Just a bit in reverse. See, paganized Christianity and a Christianized paganism is ultimately the same. It's deadly to the soul. It's a non-biblical worldview. And that's what Paul is demolishing here. And he does that, and he drives home his final thesis here. And this is where he goes. It's verse 31. Let's read verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. What is his final point of confrontation? Number six, it's that if they do not repent of their sin, then God will judge them. Right here in verse 31. If... In this very moment, they do not repent of their sin. Then God will judge them. They've heard the truth. This is God commanding. This is God speaking through Paul. What will they do about it? When God commands repentance from each listener, he demands immediate action. Just like any non-believer that we uh, engage with Scripture and proclaim Scripture to, they have no assurances that they're going to survive the moment. If God is the creator and sustainer of all things, then he's also sustaining their breath and he can take that away in that very moment. Repentance is immediate or there will be judgment in the last day. Now, not everything in Paul's message in the Areopagus, like I said, is written down, but it is clear that Paul has taught who this man is, that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he must have talked about him having died and being raised bodily because it talks about this man being appointed on a fixed day in the future to judge the world in righteousness on God's behalf. So we understand that there is a full message and we're getting the snippet view that helps us understand that confrontational aspect at each of these points. So those are six points that are helpful for us understanding Acts 17. What does this mean for you? Well, before we can go on, what we understand is that it means that you're not simply sharing your testimony when you preach the gospel. You're not just proposing a new and novel way for somebody to just think about how to apply Christianity to their philosophy. Uh, Even your apologetics isn't on their terms. It's on yours. Gospel is not a take it or leave it type of message. It's a take it and live kind of message. And so we need to be proclaimers of the truth. Whether or not we're pastors, whether or not we're preachers, whether or not we uh, actively engage in evangelism in your home and with your neighbors, and where you are in your workplace, it really does come down to, in a winsome way, the confrontational application of this truth, repent and believe or be judged. Now, we understand that there are 
There are ways to, uh, to approach that type of conversation, and it doesn't always happen in that one moment. But as the Holy Spirit allows, then you need to be faithful in that way. And we understand the results of this. It was one message, but it wasn't a failed attempt because the Lord was driving it. Look at verse 34. Starting in verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst. The message is complete. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, these people left the Areopagus that day and they were transformed and they were ready to march down the hill and start preaching the gospel in the marketplace on their way home on their way to then reach their families with the truth, reach their neighbors with the truth, and, and go back into real life with the real truth. Now, I mentioned that our time was going to be spent on point one. Uh, so what I'm going to do is just read for you these four principles, and we'll just make a few comments. Uh, this is another section of my dissertation that I was really grateful uh, to have worked on. Uh, and, of course, you know, when it comes around time to share about the dissertation, you want to say too much. So that's what this screen represents. So take a picture, write it down, whatever is useful for you. But uh, we've talked about one biblical example, Acts 17, that helps us understand uh, cultural engagement God's way. But there are principles that undergird that from other passages. And there are four principles that I lay out. There might be more, uh, certainly, the more we study Scripture together. But uh, the four principles of cultural engagement so that we make sure that we are uh, pleasing the Lord in our approach toward other people are these. First, it's that believers must preach for people to believe. Romans 10 talks about the ambassador, the herald, the messenger, the one with the truth that must take the word of faith, the word of Christ, as is laid out a couple times in this passage, and bring it so that people would respond to the truth. That first point is that believers uh, must preach for people to believe. Now, quickly turn to Romans 10, and I'll point out just uh, one highlight that I think is perhaps most important here. You notice in verse 8 that Paul is preaching this word of faith. Well, it's not his word. It's God's word, and it's the word of faith. It has uh, all of that saving power if the Holy Spirit will use it in that moment to effectually call someone out of their sin. And so he calls it that in verse 8, and then we see that he connects that word of faith in verses 9 and 10 using these terms righteousness and salvation. We understand that righteousness and salvation are granted by faith through this preaching of the word of faith. That is what the Holy Spirit will use. This very human act of proclamation is what the Lord, in his kindness, at a time of his choosing for those of his choosing, becomes the medium for their salvation. Um, And in verse 13, that could happen to anyone. If you're faithful, you'll be surprised with what the Lord will do with it. In verse 13, it says that this gift of righteousness and salvation belongs to whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Now, the idea of calling upon the name of the Lord and how that traces back to salvation is 
according to verse 9, it's this public confession of Jesus Christ. See, when you believe in your heart the truth, those facts of the gospel take root like a whistling tea kettle. True belief that is divinely planted in the soul, it percolates within a regenerate person. The expressions of faith find the spout, and they come out of the mouth, and that which has been born in the heart by God's design in that moment then results in the calling upon the name of the Lord, professing him, confessing him, making public declaration, and the public cry for him uh, to save them. Confessing the name of Jesus comes when a sinner completely trusts in him for righteousness. And that's what you see in this progression from verse 14. Take a look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Now take that backwards. Take that backwards. A preacher preaches this word of faith that Paul preached, as we saw in verse 8. Sinners hear that message. Those that God is calling believe the content of that message. And then what do they do? Like that tea kettle percolating. They call on him as Lord of their lives. That's repeated in verse 8 and verse 13 as well. And that's the pathway to salvation that God has designed through this preaching moment. So let me ask you, is there any need for a cultural accommodation strategy so that people would be convinced of the truth? No, you need to preach the gospel. Make it linguistically understandable. Be faithful. Give it and see what the Lord does with it. If he is saving somebody, this is how it works. This chain argument concludes in verse 17. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That's that word of faith by which they are given salvation and righteousness. Now, more could be said, but a second principle here, as we speed toward the end here, comes from 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 17. It's that God empowers faithful proclamation. God empowers faithful proclamation. So trust him to do his work as you are faithful to be the proclaimer. This is his work. Now, Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.12, he records his journey as he's going into very dark pagan territory. He says, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but saying farewell to them, I went on to Macedonia. Now he writes in verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and manifests through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Notice some of the terms that he's used, this this triumphal procession, this victory march of Christ, where? Through the open door that God has accomplished. God has opened as if it were a spiritual door to have the opportunity to preach Christ. Those that are faithful in the preaching of the word, this word of Christ that we saw in Romans 10, at God's time, in God's way, by God's choosing, to those that he wants to save, he will do so. And that's a victory march for Christ. 
And so Paul is thankful for that. If God is opening the door to the gospel, then whoever he's saving will find the knowledge of God to be like a sweet perfume. Those that are not being saved will find it to be the stench of death. And so according to this idea, especially in verse 14, this triumphal procession in Christ through this open door to the gospel, then cultural engagement God's way means that the believer, us, proclaimers like Paul, we manifest first through our very lives, our very selves, this aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. But you must have your mouth open. You must be proclaiming the actual truth of scripture, the content is what must be proclaimed if the door is opening. That's where the victory march will come if that's what God is doing. God empowers it. That is his role. Uh, You be faithful and watch the creator and Lord, the sustainer of all things, do his work in the hearts of people. Now, the third point is that only those being saved will find scripture relevant. Only those being saved are going to find scripture relevant. You see, you can't manufacture relevance. You can't make something spiritually relevant. That is God's work as he calls the sinner to himself. And that's the message of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 get into this idea that, you know, the Corinthians, that uh, they have their problems, but they are very clear examples of God's saving grace and his, his, uh, his work to give them uh, so much enrichment in Christ. And yet the reality is what they needed in order to be saved was straightforward. Not simplistic, but the straightforward message of the gospel. The Gentiles around them always find things like that foolish. The word of Christ to those in the Areopagus that mocked or said, just come back tomorrow, that had this apathetic type of response, it's the same anywhere. That's just to them foolish scavenger seed picking, cobbling together in idle babbling. But what we see in the Corinthian example, especially in Uh, verse uh, from chapter 117 to 216, we won't go through it, is that Gentiles always find true wisdom, true spiritual wisdom to be foolish. The knowledge of the truth is what gives access to spiritual salvation, and that happens to those that God is revealing himself to. Now, there would be more to say on this, but uh, the point is that, that, that ultimately you do your job to preach and you will see God do his in his proper way at the proper time with the people that he is saving. And that's an invisible spiritual realm of the soul type of matter. That does not involve you. But the point is you need to be faithful. Now, the fourth and final principle here is that the work of proclamation needs to go on in the life of the church. How are we going to see the Lord purify the church? Through the continual proclamation of his word. So the point is that disciples mature by means of the scripture. Colossians 1 and 2 show that disciples mature by means of the scripture. And what this is to show is that that Paul is convinced that the scriptures are applicable not only to the lost, 
but to those that are found. Because they are constantly bombarded, as we saw in just a couple examples at the beginning, of, of cultural pressures, of problems from without. What we even saw this morning, the darkness that surrounds us creeps into the church. And what is the sure solution to all of that? Not more cultural accommodation, not more man-made manipulative strategies, not more lists of things to do that draw upon our humanistic tendencies for ultimately pagan self-righteousness, but the word of God. Straightforward, but not simplistic. And that's the point here. Colossians 1 and 2 talk about disciples who need to be prayed for. They need to be led in God's word. And that's the task of the leaders, but it is the task of each one of us. To be there, to be in discipling relationships with the word of God. Where we see a brother and sister falling into a pattern that shows influence from the world, we bring them to scripture. Where we see unbelief manifesting itself in anxiety or apathy or whatever might be a result of those pressures of the world, that darkness creeping in on a brother or sister, we bring them to the word. We, we do out of this but we'll leave that to the Lord on his return. What we are fighting for now is to apply scripture, confrontational as it must be, within the bounds of the church as well. You see, because that's where we have a culture that God is calling us to actually work on. I could ask you a few questions, and this is where we'll end. Three questions about the believer's role in this culture, because this is really where we land. Three questions and serves as a bit of a pop quiz and I think you're going to pass. Okay, here's the first question. What is the central focus of biblical cultural engagement? What's the central focus of everything that we've been talking about? Yeah. The proclamation of scripture. Proclaiming Christ and Christ crucified. Straightforward, but not simplistic. Straightforward truth. Now, that's an easy one. There are different ways to proclaim That's going to involve evangelism, like we're talking about. It's going to involve Bible exposition, expounding and expositing the word so that people understand the depths that we can draw upon to to know God and know life in God. It involves Bible translation where there's need, which is in so many different places, different cultures. It involves making disciples according to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We're not in it for converts. We're in it for maturing believers. That's what this is about. Training elders is a big part as well of proclamation. And we're committed to all of these things. And this is then where it starts with repenting and believing. And we find as believers, we need to continually repent and believe at new and new levels. That's part of our sanctification. Okay, second question. How do we engage cultures biblically today? How are we supposed to do it? Everything sounds so confusing. It sounds so terribly difficult to find our way in when we're, we're finding a pastor after hours is sacrificing blood on a monkey skull. <laughs> How do you deal with that? Well, just start by proclaiming scripture like the apostles did. Straightforward. It's not simplistic. Okay, so that was also an easy question. Here's the one that's a little bit tougher, and it's number three. How do we instill a biblical culture in our churches? 
How do we instill a biblical culture right where we are? And the correct answer is always to teach Scripture. But I would break it down into two quick parts. We need to analyze what we believe. We need to analyze our local church traditions. What are our Christian customs? What are our practices of faith? What are the ways that culture might have crept in from the world and contaminated even the body of Christ as we know it, as we love it? So we need to analyze in order to evaluate if what we are practicing and what we believe is truly biblical according to Scripture or if it is in some way worldly. So that that goes for all of us. And the second thing is that we need to strive for spiritual maturity, both for us and for fellow believers. That's what the Word of God calls us to do, is to grow as disciples. We need to be equipped by the Word of God, and that's uh, what the Great Commission expects of a Great Commission disciple. So two questions you can just take home with you. You all passed the pop quiz. That's great. Two questions for you. If you had the opportunity to walk out of here today and go proclaim the gospel to a non-believer, just kind of happen while you're pumping gas on your way home, just somebody is asking you for the truth, would you know where to begin? Would you know where to start a gospel conversation? One where you could say, it will terminate in me saying that God commands you right here to repent and believe. Would you know where to begin? Second question would be, what strategies can you implement to encourage the spiritual growth of fellow believers in your life, in your small group, in your home fellowship group, over the phone and the internet, on your WhatsApp group, with the people that are in your life regularly, in your fellowship group, the people that you sit next to in the church for eight years? Do you have a strategy in place in your mind of how you can encourage them to grow spiritually as disciples? Are you in those types of relationships? Because when we talk about cultural engagement, we are talking about the change of a worldview. And for us, that's a continual process as well, to be more biblical all the time. And we want to have a plan for cultural engagement outside of the church and also inside of the church. So I'll leave you with those questions as we close in prayer. God, my prayer is that even today, you'll grant us your wisdom and your grace to live out your truth more consistently and to proclaim your truth more confidently because we're in a dark world and that affects us here in the church. Lord, as we declare your word, please cause people everywhere to call upon your holy name and be saved and sanctified according to your perfect design. Through Jesus Christ, accomplish this. Amen.